0: The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money.
1: Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast,
0: the latest on shares, markets and investments now available on your Amazon Alexa. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the world of private equity and one particular trust, investment trust from Aberdeen, the Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities Trust. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Alan Gould, who is the lead Portfolio Manager on The Trust. Alan, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: So we're actually holding this podcast uh, a few weeks after Alan presented one of the UK Investor Magazine virtual conferences. Uh, there were some great questions that, that came in then. So we're following up with our podcast and will be providing an overview of The Trust as well as the wider market. So before we, we get into it, Alan, please would you, would you be able to give us an introduction to yourself and the trust, please.
1: Yeah, of course, Jonathan. So um, so I'm kind of in my 14th year of working in the, the private equity industry and have focused on making investments into private equity funds and uh, direct co-investments throughout that time. Um, now, I started getting involved with the trust in 2017 following the merger of Aberdeen Asset Management, and uh, and Standard Life and then in 2019 in the tail end of 2019 I was asked to take on the lead portfolio manager role of that trust um so certainly the timing was quite interesting given a few months later I was you know well we were in the mid <laughs> in the, the middle of a global pandemic and and uh and then obviously this year with the 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 war in Ukraine and inflation and interest rates so it's been a it's been an interesting time and uh and certainly, uh, I'm kind of hoping for some cal- calmer waters at some point. But um, on the trust itself, um, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities Trust, or or APO for short, was launched over two decades ago, uh, way back in 2001. And it used to be called Standard Life Private Equity. And, and really, like, you know, all private equity trusts has the aim of providing access to the private equity asset class to, to, to investors of all types and sizes private equity has really been dominated by by large institutional investors and so it's about democratizing that and and giving access to the asset class for the price of a share which at the moment is is about four pounds fifty so um, but but in terms of what differentiates the trust I suppose is you know firstly we're Very focused on the European market. Most private equity trusts, um, certainly the diversified ones, are majority um, focused on on North America. And that makes sense. It's the largest market, Um, it's the birthplace of private equity. Um, But our trust is um, at least 75% European private equity managers, at least 75% European headquartered businesses. And we think Europe is attractive in a private equity context, because it's heterogeneous. It's, it's difficult for a North American private equity firm or an Asian private equity firm to fly in and out and make deals. Uh, you know, there's different languages, cultures, um, regulation, legislation. I mean, it's just not feasible that, that a, a manager can fly in and, and, and go into Paris and, and secure a deal in, in the French market, you know, quite a closed market like that. Um, So it becomes more about accessing the best managers on the ground who are often in demand and and oversubscribed. So that's what we provide is that access to the leading uh, European managers or some of the leading European managers. But another point, a differentiator on the trust would probably be the fact that we're focused on the buyout segment of the private equity market and and the majority of which being mid-market buyout. We don't have any venture capital exposure um which is a a part of private equity that's done very very well over the last 10 years but you know in the last year or so obviously is a part of the uh, you know probably the the main area that has suffered in terms of um of valuations so we don't have any vc exposure very little growth equity exposure we stick to the boring profitable cash generative businesses that are majority owned by private equity firms so um that's another um thing that, that makes our, our trust a little different uh, you know we have over 650 underlying companies well balanced by sector country and maturity and we get our exposure through private equity funds and direct co-investments and you know, the latter is quite an important point because you know at the start of 2019 we had no co-invest exposure in the trust and, and co-investments basically strip out a a layer of fees. You don't pay fees on co-investments. And that means if you build a nice big diversified portfolio, it should be accretive to returns. So we had no exposure at the start of 2019. But it made no sense why we had no exposure, because we had a co-investment team investing on behalf of other client mandates. Fast forward to now, we have 25 co-investments in the portfolio. The the co-investment portfolio grew uh, 58% in the last financial year in terms of valuation and now equates to around 20% of the portfolio. So we're really excited about that and the potential uh, it will have in terms of driving um, NAV performance. Um, just to round off, uh, the trust also pays a, a quarterly dividend, um, which equates to around a 3% yield. And lastly, in terms of performance, the annualized NAV total return since inception is over 11.5%. And in the the last financial year, financial year 22 the nav total return was 14.1% and the nav the nav has grown every year since 2010 in the in the trust
0: thank you so th- th- there's an interesting point there that you made that I'd like to pick up on alan about the cut co- bringing in the co-investments uh, into the trust and and the impact on on nav i mean how have you seen that perform i mean typically are you seeing greater increases to nav due to co-investments or, or is it in line with the, the more traditional investments in, in funds that you've made?
1: Yeah, I think we're still seeing a little bit extra growth in the co-investment portfolio. Some of that is through, without patting ourselves on the back too much, like some really yeah. strong early picks that we made. I mean, Action, which is well known through 3i, continues to grow ex, you know, extremely strongly. We've got a contract research organisation in the healthcare space called NAMSA, which is performing ahead of plan. Uh, Visma alongside HG is performing very strongly. So there's an element of performance there. But there's also a technical thing with the co-investment book is that a lot of managers value um, their assets at basically at original cost for the first year of their life. And as our co-investment book is still quite um, immature, shall we say, sort of the average age is, is still uh, a little less than than two years in terms of holding period, we're starting to see a lot of these um, assets being revalued for the first time. And that strong earnings growth during the period is, is starting to be reflected in, in the valuation for the first time. So um, that's certainly a technical reason why we're seeing a, a good strong momentum from that book and why we saw uh, growth last year of of fifty eight percent in terms of valuation.
0: Thank you. That's 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 great. So, I think what I'd like to do now, Alan, if it's okay with you, is is maybe take a bit of a step back and take a look a look at the bigger picture of why people should look at private equity. We've of course discussed there uh, how the trust is being managed. Uh, you know some of the. Um, uh, strategies that you're putting in place. But it would be good to get your view on, on why private equity should be considered within portfolios.
1: Yeah, well, we fundamentally believe that all investors sh- should have some exposure to private equity. Now, you could argue whether it's 5% or 30%. I think that's really dependent on the, the risk profile, of the portfolio people are looking to build. But, um, you know, fundamentally, private equity combines strong returns with uh, some diversification benefits relative to public equity. So I think on returns, it's pretty well understood now that private equity outperforms public equity. Obviously, some research pieces that, that try to to prove the other way, but what's without doubt in my eyes um, is that um, top and second quartile performing private equity comfortably outperforms public equity. And that's what we aim to provide in in the trust is access to those consistent performers in the top or second quartile Um, and in terms of the diversification it's also not as correlated as one might think with public equities there is correlation there but our research suggests that the correlation since 2000 uh, between European private equity and the the MISCI Europe is 0.57 so there are some diversification benefits as well so then it's sort of Leads on to what? What are the broader trends supporting the asset class? And you know, you've likely heard these many times, but I'll reiterate that the companies are staying private for longer. You know, looking at recent data by Edison, there was around ten thousand PE-backed companies and almost six thousand uh, five hundred growth and, and venture companies. So that's you know sixteen, seventeen thousand companies. And back in 2000. This combined figure was less than 3,000, and then contrast that with the number of US listed companies. In 2000, there were around 7,000, and now there's less than 5,000. And that trend actually goes further back to the 1990s as well. And there is an, an element of, at the top end of the, the stock markets, the concentration and the the sort of um, the, the fangs or, or whatever they're called now, uh, as well. So. Um, so that that's certainly um, a, a key factor, and access to capital continues to increase um, for for private backed companies. Um, P is, I think, um, around five trillion AUM at the moment in dollars, and is expected to double during the next decade, and and that has a knock on impact when you're looking at say IPOs, for example. And classic example is you know Amazon back in 1997 it IPO'd. Uh, at less than 500 million but then you compare that to uber's IPO in 2019 or airbnb in 2020 which were you know uh, well over 75 billion in uber's case and, and around you know 45 you know to 50 million uh sorry billion um in airbnb's case you know it's it's, it's a real massive step change um so yeah i think that the you know in addition to that, I think the governance model of private equity is also a little bit underappreciated by the market. The fact that private equity owners sit on the board, often have majority control, can you know in extreme cases hire fire management, but can also support management much more effectively now as well, and, and be a partner. I think is 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 very compelling when you compare to public equity when. You know the the shareholder base is is highly dispersed and and you know a lot of influence is really through proxy voting. Um, I I think the governance model is is certainly a, a powerful part of the asset class and 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 that is just being underlined or being further helped by the fact that private equity firms, following the global financial crisis, they've really gone down the route of becoming much more specialized by sector and and. Some of the specialists have almost like trade buyer levels of knowledge in certain areas, whether that's certain areas of healthcare or certain areas of software. You know, they are able to add so much more value to their companies and be a much better partner to their companies than they used to. Sort of days of passive investment and financial engineering, you know, are, you know, kind of over. If, if you're that's what you're relying on as a private equity firm these days, you're you're just not going to survive. So, so yeah, it's more specialist. Um, The the strong governance model and the fact that companies are staying private for longer, I think, are compelling reasons why, if you want um, access to companies of the future, the the disruptors, the innovators, and the niche market leaders, private equity is the place to to find them generally.
0: So with that trend, Alan, companies staying private for longer – yeah, is is that ultimately a good thing for your mandates
1: yeah I think it it is because uh, it increases the pool um, that you can that you can uh, access really um, and I think it's good for the companies as well I mean sort of the availability of capital and having partners that can really help you and support you whether that's you know, you're, you're looking to launch new products or, or move into a new geographic market or to buy a, a competitor business and, and really take a step change in terms of scale. And to have a partner like a private equity firm that's done it over and over again, I think is quite a compelling sell to founders and management out there. And then from our point of view, it just increases the pool for our for our private equity managers to source interesting deals uh, as well so yeah i think it's a it's a positive thing for the asset class
0: so with with this trust there's obviously a disconnect alan between the assets that you're investing of course privately held you know not that often revalued on a nav basis but then being an investment trust you're, you're out there in the market and you're um facing the gyrations of of the equity trade out there and of course you know looking at the discounts now for private equity trusts they 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 have got uh, a little bit bigger over the, the recent period do you think that's justified or do you think that's a symptom of of wider uh, concerns about the, the economy and, and markets
1: it's those wider concerns are at play but it won't surprise you um <laughs> but i think that the, the discounts are unjustified in terms of the, the, how wide they are right now We've only really seen levels like this for P trusts across the board uh, at the start of the global pandemic in March 2020 and the global financial crisis, really. I mean, almost all P trusts are trading at a discount, and most are trading at a discount above 30%. And I think that's driven by sort of the skepticism that, that we're hearing from some quarters you know, around the fact that we've seen public markets fall considerably in, in, in 2022 and, and and people expecting private equity to mirror or even exceed these declines. And, you know, but, but in, in last year, for example, in the financial year 22, APO's portfolio grew in constant currency terms by 11%. And most private equity portfolios were at least flat year on year. Um, uh, so, it's sort of, people have been scratching their heads a little bit in that, and 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 combined with this sort of lag in reporting, um, you know, they're expecting somehow P portfolios to start falling. But I think it's a lack of understanding on how P valuations work in practice. Um, I've read some headlines, you know, where people have said that P firms are, you know, refusing to write down their portfolios, but. Um, you know, I've not seen that, and and you know, if we look at our portfolio, the governance around it, around valuations is so strong. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, all of our private equity managers in APL revalue their, their portfolios on a bottom-up basis every quarter. All of their investments are in line with, uh, are valued in line with um, international private equity and venture capital, uh, you know, valuation guidelines. Um, they're all in line with either IFRS or US GAAP accounting standards. They're all audited at least annually, and then our auditors at the trust level then take a sample and audit the valuation methodology of the the largest positions in the book, and then we as managers scrutinise the valuations. Our audit committee as well scrutinise the valuations on a quarterly basis. So the scrutiny of the valuations is 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 multi layered, and uh, and so the the idea that you know, all of these, you know, elements of governance are, you know, the people involved are, the stakeholders are kind of asleep at the wheel would be, is, I think is quite unrealistic. Um, you know, private equity doesn't act like levered listed equity and we can go into the reasons why, but, but, but coming back to your question on discounts, I think if you are long term minded right now provides an excellent opportunity in my eyes, given how wide these discounts are relative to the to longer trends and, you know, especially when you consider just finally that, you know, private equity tends to make a lot of its best performing investments during periods of uncertainty when pricing tends to be a bit more reasonable, when more interesting assets come to market. So maybe long held family owned businesses or corporate carve outs or or, or public to private. So it's you know, more differentiated type deal flow comes to market at, at more reasonable pricing.
0: So, look, looking again at, at valuation, Alan, you know when you're looking out there at, at you know at the market at the moment, are, are you seeing better opportunities on a valuation basis than you know, maybe this time last year? And you know, within that, when you're valuing the portfolio, you did say there we can maybe expand on that, and I think that would be quite a good uh, a good point to to do because you mentioned that there was an eleven percent increase on on NAV, but at the same time, we're seeing a big, big uh, widening in the, in the discount. You know, given what's happening out there, are you starting to see valuations soften, and, and, and is that giving you any opportunities? Do you feel?
1: Well, look, I, I think if we look at our latest quarter, the values grew constant currency um, around two point two percent. So we're not seeing a softening on valuation, and we can go into the reasons why. In, in terms of more broadly on. Pricing of new assets in this market, I think it's quite difficult to say there's been a real step change because, um, uh, the you know private equity M and has fallen quite considerably, um, and and so not many things have traded, and the things that have traded have tended to be A plus assets that have a strong um, buy and build component to their their value creation strategy, so um, the ability to sort of blend down the entry multiple with smaller bolt-on acquisitions that you can acquire at cheaper multiples. Um, There just hasn't been that much activity really. So it's difficult to say if pricing has has really changed. I mean, the stuff that we have seen trade have traded at less than, you know, pricing we saw in 2021 and early 22, Um, but but perhaps not as much as you would think. But on the valuations more broadly and of the the sort of unrealized book, you know, I sort of alluded to the governance of it a little bit earlier, but um, there's a few other things I'd pull out. You know, firstly, it's worth noting that private equity funds typically charge management fees on commitments and the cost of investment, not on value. Plus their carried interest, the equivalent of a performance fee is paid upon cash received from the realization of investment. So in reality, there's very little incentive for performing private equity managers to be aggressive when valuing their unrealized portfolio. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The market has grown so accustomed to private equity managers selling companies at an uplift to book value that that's almost now expected in a market norm. And we can discuss that a bit later on as well. But relating to our portfolio and and sort of alluded to that 11% growth, the first thing I'd, I'd mention is that Earnings growth has been really strong and continues to be. Um, so if I take um, you know, our top 50 underlying portfolio companies, we've got 656, I think, at last count um, in the portfolio, but our top 50 is 42% of the portfolio value. That cohort grew uh, in terms of earnings by 24% on average during financial year 2022. So these businesses are still growing in a more difficult backdrop. Now, why, why was that? I guess is the obvious uh, response. It's sort of there's obviously some hangover from the global pandemic in the comparative 21 numbers, but I believe the strong growth is principally because private equity buyout managers changed their focus following the global financial crisis, um, became more focused on market leading non discretionary businesses in, in, in resilient markets that crucially have pricing power. so we're talking about mission critical businesses in technology, b2B services, healthcare, which have kind of replaced the typical investments prior to the global financial crisis which were you know in consumer discretionary, traditional bricks and mortar retailers, casual dining roll-ups or in industrials, the chemical businesses, manufacturers. so more resilient businesses and to help illustrate that you know in terms of our portfolio, the healthcare sector increased um, has increased from six percent in 2012 to 20 21 percent and the largest single sector in our trust at the end of financial year 22 so um, real increase in more resilient sectors which i think are, are creating um, you know that that stronger earnings growth during more uncertain periods and I think private equity managers as we mentioned before are better at creating value now than they were ten years ago but I guess again, then the follow on question would be right, okay, in terms of valuations, if earnings have been growing, you know, surely the decline in public markets and higher interest rates, et cetera, discount rates, you know, means that the multiples applied to earnings in the valuation have declined. And they have. But it's important to understand how private equity has valued for a long time. And we're focused on the buyout market, so majority held businesses, cash generative businesses. um, But typically, to derive a multiple, a private equity firm uses a basket of listed comparables and transaction comparables, and both have their flaws. The listed comparables are mark-to-market date of valuation, which is clearly optimal, but it's typically larger businesses than the private business you're valuing, typically lower growth, um, subsector can oft- often not be a perfect match. Um, on the other hand, transaction comparables are often private transactions, similarly sized, similar growth trajectories, but but the the timing is over a longer time period. And so that creates a buffer in private equity valuations when you take a mix of those two, and especially when you consider private equity firms tend to apply an illiquidity discount to the basket of listed comps. So that leads to that point I mentioned earlier around diversification and why private equity and public equity aren't perfectly correlated. And to evidence that, uh, private equity tends to value at an uplift, as I alluded to earlier. So in our portfolio, we've calculated over the last 10 years an average uplift of around 25% um, when when private equity sells a business compared to the, the valuation, the unrealized valuation two quarters prior. Bain & Co. in their recent global private equity report calculated that over 70% of private equity exits between 2012 and 22 were at an uplift to the valuation only a quarter prior. So I think that illustrates how private equity valuations have been relatively conservative, I would say, over the last 10 years. Now, it could be argued now, um, you know, what, is it, what does it mean now? Could this uplift upon exit evaporate now, uh, you know, given valuations and, and given public markets? And frankly, that's yet to be tested with any sort of scale, but we have seen initial positive signs with, with managers in APO's portfolio like HG selling Transporian or Nordic Capital selling selling Binding Site or CBC selling April, they sold those businesses um, in the second half of 22 at an uplift to their valuations. So the uplift seems to have persisted, um, and I think that underlines how private equity valuations, particularly in the buyout space, which we're focused on, um, have been conservative for some time.
0: So there's a there's a few points in there, Alan, which I would like to to pick up on. But the first of all, uh, the interesting point that that I think would be worth expanding on is how the underlying portfolio holdings in healthcare has gone from I think you said for about six percent uh, back in 2012 uh, to around 20 percent very recently. Obviously, that's that's a big shift in the allocation to that. I mean, how is that playing out, and are there any other trends that you're looking at now? that you may be making bigger allocations to in the future?
1: Yeah, so we're really pleased with our healthcare portfolio. And, and some of that is managers, obviously, you know, investing more in healthcare, like like I mentioned. But it is also um, us as manager here of the, the trust overall, backing more healthcare specialist private equity funds, but also co-investments as well. So we've got a, a good, strong... Um, Number of um, of healthcare assets in the portfolio. Um, I mentioned NAMSA earlier, but we've got others like Prolenium and, and and you know and various others. So it's sort of deliberate at both the manager level or the, the private equity manager level, at the fund level, and then us at our level, sort of pivoting that way. And and what we've typically invested in subsector wise is sort of um, healthcare services businesses, um, like um, pharma businesses. And some med tech, but med tech's been quite uh, highly priced over the last wee while. Um, uh, so, so um, we're we're pleased with that. I wouldn't expect healthcare to grow much more than where it's at now 20, 21 percent. Um, but other, but but it's similar with technology as well. To be honest, I mean, it's technology is just the second largest sector, sort of around twenty percent, is just behind healthcare, but again a deliberate shift there because of um well more focused on B2B embedded technology businesses that are you know non-discretionary less of the sort of consumer tech, you know, high growth, high cash burn businesses. It's been more kind of the, the businesses, the ERP businesses that, that, that the small and medium enterprises can't live without. Um, so that's grown as well. As but but to your question as we look ahead i mean what else might grow in that portfolio well well i think at the moment we've only got one percent in energy which i think historically we're very happy with because um you know our experience is that you know sectors that are well tied to commodity pricing tend not to do that well through the cycle in, in a private equity model that's been our experience but but as i look ahead the green transition could be an enormous opportunity and it'll be the private markets that really drive that. Um, So we're starting to see a bit more opportunities in that space. And when we look at energy, it might be that that begins to increase with sort of green transition type of technologies. Um, But aside from that, I would say or expect the the, the sort of sector breakdown to be pretty consistent. We don't want a single sector to be more than 25% of the portfolio. And I expect that tech and healthcare Will continue to, to lead the way given their their more resilient properties.
0: Thank you. So it'd be good to, to move on now, Alan, to what you see for the for the rest of, of this year. And I think it'd be good if you could bring back in an element about the discount, because that will be something that I know listeners to this podcast will be particularly interested to get your views on on how you see that alleviated being alleviated for the rest, during the rest of this year? And, uh, you know, generally in private equity, how do you see the rest of this year playing out?
1: we'll start with the general outlook. Um, I mean, I obviously remain very positive and confident on the prospects for the asset mm-hmm. class. Um, but what I would say is 2023 is proving to be a tougher year so far and I expect it to continue to be tough um, for the remainder of it. Um, and then certainly in terms of m a levels. So, Mainly new investments and exits have fallen quite considerably. Um, there's, a, there's a disconnect. I think there's still a disconnect between buyer and seller expectations that, that really emerged from the middle of uh, last year um, following the war in Ukraine and, you know, the sharp increase in inflation and interest rates. Um, and then plus, you know, debt to finance new deals has become less available, more expensive meaning mean, the private equity firms have had to really think deeply how they finance these assets. There's still private credit funds that that can provide uh, financing, but if it's that much more expensive um, and these private credit funds have the pick of the market, yeah, it's it's always going to be a bit more tough. Um, And hence, we saw quite a considerable drop off in deal flow um, down uh, close to 60% in the first quarter of 2023 relative to Q1-22. So, um that I think the first half of the year is, is going to be we're gonna see quite low levels of of ME relative to the sort of long term mean. Um I think in the, in this market, a lot of our private equity managers have been focusing on making small add-on acquisitions for their current portfolio companies. So driving the value inorganically that way. And I think as well the sort of relative lack of exits that you'll see you know in the first half of 2023 will have an impact on nav as well nav growth as well because i mentioned earlier about the uplift upon exit when private equity sells a business that obviously drives nav growth and so i expect that that'll be lower in terms of contribution in recent than recent years so you're relying on earnings growth in the underlying unrealized portfolio to drive nav so it might be nav is a little bit more moderate in terms of growth um this year, but all of that said, I think you know private equity firms are sitting on record levels of capital. The market can only stay quiet so long, um, and as I mentioned earlier, the private equity makes its best investments during these times. So that's that's exciting, and I do feel cautiously optimistic that deal flow will come back in the second half of the year. I think the spread between buyers and sellers' expectation will close, and and I think. And I hope that more certainty in the wider financial markets around inflation and interest rates in particular um, will drive that. And, and it will help banks come back cautiously to provide new LBO financing too. So so I, I think that, you know, the current um, challenges are temporary. Um, and the, But to your point around discount, I've almost stopped um, trying to guess what the discount is going to do. Because I'd never get it right. Right. Um, I would like to think that the discounts will start to come in. I think that and, and materially so as the year progresses. I think a lot of it, as we mentioned earlier, is around valuation skepticism and as times pass and the values don't drop, you know twenty percent or whatever the market's expecting, you know people will realize there is an opportunity here with private equity if they're longer term minded um, and we'll start to see those discounts come in to the more historic levels sort of in the diversified ones around, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen 17%. And then some of the direct ones, you know, in the the single percentages, frankly, I've scratched my head around the discount for so long. And the fact that private equity is on a discount at all, given the uplifts upon exit, but, uh, but obviously I'm quite, quite biased in terms of the subject.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a really good point to, to highlight there, Alan, you know, in summary, you 've described a portfolio with underlying earnings growth and nav growth, but at the same time a discount that's been widening on on little basis for from the underlying assets It seems like it's it's a market sentiment thing as opposed to anything to do with the underlying company so I think that's one thing to to take away from this and, and just to finish off now, Alan people will be listening to this and you know, getting a good idea of how the fund works. It, it will be good just to finish, if, if you may, with a couple of examples of companies that are held within the portfolio, just to give people a flavour of the type of companies they'll be getting access to.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, we have. Oh, it's, it's best to talk about the co-investments, to be honest, um, because they're they're generally the larger positions. Um, so, I mean, we have access to our our action the discount retailer is the the largest position in our book at around five percent of nav um that's obviously held through the three i trust as well um so that continues to grow strongly and obviously there's a lot of information out there about that likewise visma with hg which uh, many will be familiar with the erp business in the nordics and in benelux is one of those as i mentioned earlier deeply embedded software businesses it's, you know one of the last things a company would you know, stop paying for along with their, probably their electricity. Um, It's so embedded in their workflows and and that's what we like about it. It's sort of, it's very, very resilient. Um, But then some of the ones that are, that are not available elsewhere. I mean, I would pull out things like um, ACT, which is an environmental services business. It basically helps corporates um, uh, sort of, make the transition to to becoming greener and and help them with their climate attestations whether that's for regulatory reasons like a a aviation business or voluntary reasons like a company looking to demonstrate its carbon neutrality, ACTs, uh, a business that that, um, helps them do that and that's growing very very strongly because that market is is growing exponentially. Uh, And then I'll maybe round off with European Camping Group which Uh, is unsurprisingly a a campsite operator uh, in France, Spain, um, Italy, and Croatia. That's performed very well. That was our bet on on the recovery in travel and leisure post-COVID. It's doing what we thought it would and more in terms of organic growth. But it also recently acquired um, one of its main peers, a business called Backhand Select. So it's undergone a transformatory sort of... um, merger so that's another one we're really excited about and, and yeah overall you know we're really you know really positive on, on in terms of the co-investment book and the 25 assets we have in there we have uh, none of them are, are significantly underperforming but we've got a lot that are performing ahead of plans so um touch wood that continues
0: so just as one final point, and it is again on on the co investment side of things, because it, you know from that it, it seems like there's a lot of interest from from you as a manager in these ones that you can co invest in. Do you have more of a, an input into those businesses, and and is and if so, is that one of the attractions of looking at co investment businesses?
1: Well, I think we're still stock selectors in terms of co-investment so we're rarely on the board for example we we delegate that to the private equity managers so you know that we partner with and that's why it's very very important that we you know develop the relationship with those managers and diligence them thoroughly um so we can have that confidence um so but 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 certainly we we decline an awful lot of co-investment flows we have a lot of influence in terms of how we're constructing that portfolio certainly don't just accept any old co-investment that come our way. You know, for example, I think last year we received in Europe about 90 co-investment leads, and I think we did uh, across all mandates around 15 or 20. So so it's, it's yeah. you know, we are declining way more than, than we're doing. But, uh, you know, we are essentially passive investors. We've got to make sure we get the stock selection right. And, you know, we're partnering with the right managers. And, we you know, we think we're doing that.
0: That's great. Alan, thank you very much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure.
0: And just as a final note to listeners, do check out the notes to this podcast and you'll find a link through to the Investment Trust website where you'll be able to find some more information, have a look at their fact sheets and recent performance. So, Alan, once more, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Thank you. This podcast was presented by Oanda, TradingView's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money.